From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the National Health Checkup Survey conducted by Mayo Clinic, nearly all Americans say they would choose an alternative to opioid pain relievers following surgery. But despite the fear of addiction, few patients are talking to their health care provider about it. And I don't think the health care providers are doing such a good job of talking to their patients about it. (laughs) On today's program, we'll discuss the Mayo Clinic survey and the opioid crisis with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll discuss the recent rise in sexually transmitted diseases. That's this week's program. Up next. Twice a year, the Mayo Clinic conducts a national health checkup survey, taking the pulse of Americans on health opinions and behaviors. The most recent survey, released in October, focused on opioids. What exactly are opioids? Well, they're a class of drugs that includes the illegal drug heroin, synthetic opioids like fentanyl, and pain relievers available legally by prescription such as oxycodone, hydrocodone, codeine, morphine, and several others. That's a long list. It is. There's a lot of them out there. Unfortunately, a record-breaking 72,000 Americans died from drug overdoses in 2017. That's according to preliminary estimates from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Most of those deaths were related to opioids. So what do Americans know and think about the opioid crisis? Here to discuss is the chair of Mayo Clinic's Opioid Stewardship Program, Dr. Helena Gazelka. Welcome back to the program. It's great to see you, Dr. Gazelka. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Gazelka, thanks so much for being with us. It's interesting that this year's Mayo Clinic National Health Checkup Survey focused on a particular topic, opioids. Yeah, and what a big topic. That's all you see when you turn on the TV or open the newspaper. There's just article after article about opioids and their impact on the United States. And I think it's really interesting that we did this survey now because I think that most Americans do understand that uh, there's a this is a major national crisis, not just in healthcare but a societal crisis. And uh, it's really important for patients to participate in their own healthcare and to be able to talk to their providers about opioid-related issues. How did this whole thing get out of hand? Isn't it true that a decade or so ago, physicians were criticized because they weren't prescribing enough pain medication? Their patients were in pain and they, they were ignoring it? Is that how it all started? Or where? how did we get to where we are? Well, that would be a simplistic view, I think. But it's such a multifaceted problem. I do think that providers need to own the responsibility that we have had uh, in contributing to the crisis. At Mayo Clinic and our opioid stewardship program, we have really focused our efforts on managing the supply of these very important medications. And I think um, there are so many other aspects of this crisis that need to be addressed by the government, by other um, agencies, but we need to do what we can do as providers, and patients need to do what they can do as patients to prevent and to help to fix this crisis. It's interesting to me that one of the things that has changed is even just the mindset from we need to remove pain from a patient's life to we need to manage pain for a patient's life. What's the difference in that, in those two sentences? Well, I think we've created a culture of expectations that if I hurt, I shouldn't hurt. And then if I hurt, surely there must be a fix for that. I could take a pill for that. Someone should be able to fix that for me. I don't think that's necessarily true in other industrialized countries. We use 
far, far, far more opioids than any other country does. And I don't think it's necessarily because we're treating pain uh, better. I think that removing pain is a worthy goal. Wonderful if we can do that. Acute pain is like that. Often patients come in, they have an injury, they've had a surgery, they have some reason that they have um, an issue with pain, but we know it's going to get better or we presume it's going to get better. The problem is that there is a lot of chronic pain that patients either deal with for years or for a lifetime. And it's those patients whose expectations must uh, be that we will help you to manage your pain. We will find a way to deal with that. I see these patients all the time in the pain clinic, but opioids are not necessarily the answer, nor is fixing your pain. Don't you think it's hard to argue that the providers aren't in some way responsible for this crisis? Because somebody had to prescribe these medications. And did we not understand how addictive opioids really are? Or are people getting these kind of medications someplace else, on the Internet or or someplace? That's a really good question. And I think, uh, unfortunately, It is true that we didn't know how addictive these medications are and that they were sold by drug companies as not being addictive. We were told not to be concerned about that as as providers, but it wasn't true. I remember when I was in medical school that one of my professors told me that 50% of what you learn in medical school will be disproved during your medical career. Really? 50%? Yeah, so keep learning. I don't know whether that's true. (laughs) I know I've forgotten 50%. (laughs) (laughs) But I've seen a lot of major changes in how we manage patients' Uh, since graduating from medical school, I do think the medical community has an incredible responsibility in this. When we make recommendations to our patients, they assume that we are making the right recommendation. They assume that we have knowledge behind what we're doing, that we're practicing evidence-based medicine, and that we're giving them the best advice there is. I think today, however, that patients also have a responsibility. We live in a time of incredible uh, education and availability of knowledge and um, while it is the responsibility of providers to uh, explain to patients what mechanisms may be used to treat their pain and and to warn them about the possible side effects and risks of medications that are prescribed, I think um, that patients should feel empowered to ask those questions of their providers as well. Yeah, well, I think you're absolutely right. And that discussion needs to happen. And I don't think... Uh, we probably had the discussion we should have had with our patients uh, over the past many years. We gave them too many pills, and we didn't tell them how addictive they were, and maybe we didn't understand that either. Uh, and we probably should have said these are for these are for acute pain. These are for short-term use. Mm-hmm. Y- y- if you need to keep taking them or think you need to keep taking them after five days or a week or whatever, you need to come back and see me. Sound I agree reasonable? with that. Yeah. And that's kind of... Uh, what we are trying to promote now. We have worked quite a bit on our prescribing practices here at Mayo. You're right. We were over-prescribing. We were giving out too many pills and people weren't using them. And then what do they do with them? They keep them in their medicine cabinet. That puts others at risk of misuse. It um, puts our communities at risk of diversion and pills being floating around for our school children and others to get a hold of. So you mentioned that there are all of these pills sitting around that, that people didn't use, which is uh, mm-hmm. partly a good thing, but they don't know how to get rid of them. So what are we supposed to do with the ones we haven't used and don't need? Well, that is correct. I think that patients don't have enough information about disposal. And I think one reason it's so confusing is that different websites say different things and that different communities have different resources available. 
So many communities have a box available either in the sheriff's department or in the police department where patients can drop off their pills. We are working on getting those boxes here at some of our pharmacies at the Mayo Clinic. And we are participating in the DEA National Take Back Day. There's one held typically in April and one in October, and it's a great way for patients to uh, get rid of their medications. And how do you find out when those days are in, in, in your city? Patients can look at the DEA website, takeback.dea.gov. Takeback.dea.gov. Correct. And they can see when those events are being held and whether there might be a location near them where they could dispose of their medications. All right. And why is it wrong to flush them? Well, it depends who you ask. The FDA website actually says it's okay to flush medications. Oh, all right. I think it depends how many medications you're trying to get rid of. If you've got a couple pills left in a prescription of oxycodone and you need to be rid of it in some way, I think it might be okay to flush those pills. However, the EPA would probably tell us it's not a good idea, that we're con- contaminating our, our water supply. So there are many better ways to get rid of medication. Some are um, bags with charcoal. Pills can be added and then water added, and it destroys the medication such that it can't be reconstituted to abuse or misuse. And so there are many good ways to, to dispose of them other than the toilet. We are talking with Mayo Clinic Pain Medicine Specialist, Dr. Elena Gazelka, about the most recent Mayo Clinic Health Checkup Survey, What Do Americans Know and Think About Opioids? So, Dr. Gazelka, what is Mayo Clinic doing to combat the opioid epidemic? What's happening on our front? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm enjoying being here today. We have formed um, an opioid stewardship program here at Mayo Clinic, which I have the privilege of uh, chairing. We've been very active since 2016 and have made some incredible strides in both understanding our opioid prescribing habits, understanding the needs of our patients, and uh, then changing our behaviors. One of our first projects was to understand what our providers are sending patients home with. So we looked at nearly 8,000 patients who had common surgeries performed at the Mayo Clinic, not just here in Rochester, but also in Florida and Arizona. And uh, we looked to see what the patients had had provided when patients went home. Then uh, we called about 3,000 of those patients and surveyed them and asked them to look and see what they had left. How many pills did they use? How was their pain management? Asked them a number of questions. And 63% of the pills that we prescribed went unused. Mm-hmm. And most of the patients, about 89%, kept them in their medicine cabinet after they were finished for the next time someone might need them. Wow. 89%. Yes. It's striking. Really amazing. I have to say that for me, I am so afraid to use it because you hear about the addiction parts of it. I end up having some left over. It's because I think I underuse them for just those short term that I need them. Is that why they have some left over? Oh, perhaps. Maybe it's sort of like having an insurance policy or carrying your umbrella. <laughs> that um, if you have the opioids there, maybe you won't need them, but you certainly can save them for a rainy day. Um, that's perhaps the philosophy. Based on what we found, we then developed guidelines. So they're both, they're individualized guidelines, individualized both to patients and to uh, procedures. Part of our campaign here at Mayo has been to avoid blanket uh, prescribing standards. So a lot of the legislation regarding opioid prescribing has centered on how many days can a, f- a provider provide to a patient. Uh, three to seven is most popular. How many milligrams can they provide to a patient? And h- what number of pills can they provide to a patient? Now, patients are different 
and procedures are different and um, events are different. And so we would like to leave uh, space for providers to use their knowledge, both of the patient and of their uh, situation, to prescribe the right amount of opioid to them. However, with our new guidelines, we've been prescribing uh, approximately 50% less in some of the departments that are have thus far participated, and we've measured their results. And we estimate that's about a million pills less a year uh, here in the city of Rochester and in our other major sites as well. Wow. So you've, we've had some follow-up, and we're doing better. That's right. But are we there yet? I mean, Absolutely we- not. <laughs> I wish. Don't I only wish. <laughs> yeah. We have many, many ongoing projects uh, to help deal with this. I think education is a, a big aspect of this. We need to educate the public about what to expect. We need to educate providers on how to do this better than they're doing it right now. And we're um, developing videos and uh, printed materials for both of those reasons. For the physicians and the, and the uh, healthcare providers that work here at Mayo, uh, is there some place that you can go and and get that prescribing information and suggestions and how we should do it and how much we should be prescribing? Absolutely. We have all of our guidelines published on Ask Mayo Expert, and we have an opioid stewardship website uh, under O in the groups on the on the Mayo Clinic website. And how about a patient? Uh, how can they learn more about this and, and about opioids? One of the best places that patients can look right now is on our uh, website, uh, healthcheckup.mayoclinic.org, and we have uh, lots of links and information for them there. Healthcheckup.mayoclinic.org. That's correct. Uh, I noticed from the survey results that were done for the National Health Checkup that Americans see opioid use as a problem. Yes, they agree with that, but they don't see themselves at risk from it. Can you expand a little bit about that? What does that mean? Isn't that just human nature? It might happen to someone else, but it probably won't happen to me. <laughs> yeah, 67% of respondents uh, understand that uh, substance use disorder or addiction to opioids is something that can develop, but they certainly don't think it will happen to them. And I think that's really a faulty thinking. We know that there are likely patients who are more likely to develop substance use disorders. Some of those risk factors we understand today, many of them we do not. There are probably genetic factors involved and many other factors. But um, everyone should uh, treat these medications with respect and uh, with the uh, genuine concern that um, they not want, they would not want to remain on them longer than they needed to because that risk of uh, abuse and addiction does increase with time. You have said that we, we haven't solved this problem yet. So what, what next steps? What are you going to do now? Well, we have a lot of ongoing projects. We, as I said, continue to educate our providers. We also, uh, and our patients, we also are implementing changes. So this is a big organization, and it doesn't happen overnight. So even though we've written guidelines, we need now to uh, disseminate them. We also are working on workflows so that prescribing the right way is easier for providers. Mm. These are conversations that take a long time. Monitoring patients on opioids is a costly endeavor, Mm -hmm. takes time. And um, we are trying to make that as simple as it can be for patients and providers. We will continue to study our prescribing practices to make sure that we're in compliance with state and federal legislation uh, concerning opioid prescribing, and even to change our guidelines as needed if we find out that we are still still don't have it right, that we're prescribing too much or too little. Uh, before we finish up, what are some of the other survey results that we found from that National Health Checkup? 
I really thought this was an interesting survey. I think it's striking and something that providers need to recognize that patients um, want something different. 94%, that's almost every American, 94% of the people surveyed stated if they had a choice, they would prefer not to take an opioid and instead would like their pain treated in another way. This is ripe for conversation when patients are going in and having surgery or have, have some sort of an in- injury or need opioids or if their provider thinks they need opioids. I can think of one good example, and that's in uh, wisdom tooth extraction. Years and years, we were prescribing significant amounts of opioids for wisdom tooth extraction. Mm-hmm. However, there are good studies showing that a combination of non-steroidal agents, such as ibuprofen and acetaminophen or Tylenol, are just as effective as treating that pain with opioids. We also know that individuals who come in contact with opioids before the age of 18 have a significantly higher risk of misusing or abusing or becoming addicted to them in adulthood than someone who does not experience opioids until they're in adulthood. So interesting. My daughter had her wisdom teeth out maybe four or five years ago, 30 codeine, 30 oxycodone, and took, I think, three. So you're absolutely right. Uh, The last point that I'd like to make is that we call our program here the Opioid Stewardship Program. I chose that name and asked it to be named that for a reason. These are really good medications. They're often appropriate medications for patients. We are not anti-opioid at the Mayo Clinic, but we just encourage the use of the right drug for the right patient at the right time and want to uh, convey that we understand our responsibility toward patients. All right, I'm glad you got the job, and I like the name. (laughs) Thank you. We've been talking about the Mayo Clinic National Health Checkup Survey, which focused this year on opioids with the chair of Mayo Clinic's Opioid Stewardship Program, Dr. Helena Gazelka. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Gazelka. Thank you so much for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss the recent rise in sexually transmitted diseases with a Mayo Clinic expert. And now, here's the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Exercise and healthy eating can help prevent heart disease, but how can you prevent breast cancer? Dr. Karthik Ghosh says we always say that there are some things you can't control. Age and family history you can't control, but there's a lot that you can control. Dr. Ghosh says lifestyle choices can help lower your risk of breast cancer. Maintain a healthy weight, get regular exercise, don't smoke, and limit alcohol. Screening for early detection is also key. She says they're still recommending to start screening mammography at age 40 for our general risk populations, so if you don't have a family history or no other known risk factors, that's very reasonable. Women at higher risk or who have dense breasts may benefit from 3D mammography, MRI, or molecular breast imaging, and all women should continue to perform breast self-exams to look for changes. Dr. Ghosh says in terms of identifying risk factors and preventive efforts and early diagnosis, we have hope. Hope for winning the battle against breast cancer. And in other news, rose geranium oil may help to ease the symptoms of nasal vestibulitis, a common and painful nasal condition linked to cancer drug treatment. This is according to the results of a small observational study published online in the journal BMJ, Supportive and Palliative Care. 
The findings build on anecdotal evidence for the use of rose geranium oil to treat nasal vestibulitis, which affects the lining of the nostrils, causing them to become excessively tender, bleed, and form scabs. However, researchers caution that larger studies are needed to see if the oil is a viable treatment option. Now, all study participants did say that it helped ease their symptoms. While researchers note that rose geranium in sesame oil nasal spray appears to be quite useful for patients, they caution that their study is observational and as such can't establish a cause. They also note that their findings are limited by the low response rate to the survey and emphasize that further research is needed. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. A record number of cases of sexually transmitted diseases were diagnosed in the U.S. in 2017. Now, this marks the fourth straight year of increases in gonorrhea, syphilis, and chlamydia. That, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. While most of these infections can be treated with antibiotics, gonorrhea has become resistant to many of the antibiotics used to treat STDs. And joining us to discuss the rise in sexually transmitted infections is Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Stacy Rizza. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Rizza. Thank you very much. Dr. Rizza, nice to see you. Nice Not to a see particularly you. pleasant topic, however. Sorry about that. But, <laughs> you know, this increasing number of, of cases of sexually transmitted disease has to be of concern. Of course, it absolutely is of concern for many reasons. Um, firstly, whenever we see any kind of infectious disease increasing year after year that tells us that we have something we need to improve on in a public health setting. It's also of concern because some of those sexually transmitted infections, such as chlamydia and gonorrhea, can result in infertility and long-term effects. And then lastly, many of these sexually transmitted infectious diseases have domino effects, meaning if you get more chlamydia or gonorrhea, you may be more vulnerable to getting HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. So it's sort of a a pile of concerns that all feed onto each other. And the term STDs and STIs for sexually transmitted infections kind of interchangeable, but we're starting to go with the infections more than the diseases. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so why the increase? Excellent question. I don't know that we know for sure, but I think there has been a trend that as the HIV epidemic has a public opinion of quote-unquote being under control, people aren't being quite as attentive to using condoms, using barrier protections, and being careful with their new sexual partners. There was a time when HIV was a death sentence, and the public knowledge and public movement was that people were being very careful, and there was actually a drop in the number of sexually transmitted infections. So it's not necessarily that people are having more sex than they used to. It's that they're having sex that's unprotected. Exactly. That is the presumption. But that's, I thought we were doing a better job of sex education in, uh, for students. We Hopefully we are. Unfortunately, the numbers would suggest that our students and our younger generation are not using barrier protection. In fact, of the 20 million sexually transmitted infections that are estimated to happen in the U.S. every year, about half of those are in people between the age of 15 and 24, yet that's only considered one quarter of the people who are sexually active. So we definitely have a disproportionate number of 
younger Americans, as well as men who have sex with men who are getting these sexually transmitted infections. So we do have a little bit of an idea of where to target better education. And we certainly do have more than we have had in the past, but unfortunately it's not resulting in fewer of these STIs. So treatment, obviously important to avoid the complications, which we'll talk more about. But isn't it also true that you can have a sexually transmitted disease and not know it? Absolutely. In fact, many of these sexually transmitted infections, anything from chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, HIV, you actually can be asymptomatic for the entire course of the infection or for decades, such as the case of HIV. So it matters for the people who are symptomatic. It matters from the public health perspective because you can still transmit it to others. And it matters for the complications. But it Many times a person may be exposed, may be infected, and may not be aware that they have the infection. And if there are symptoms, what are they generally? It depends on the infection we're talking about. So for chlamydia or gonorrhea, generally it can cause dysuria or burning with urination. It can cause pain with intercourse. It can frequently cause a discharge from the penis or from the vagina. And unfortunately, in both those cases, they can also result in infertility for young women or women who are still of childbearing age. Syphilis has different presentations. Primary syphilis generally results in an ulcer somewhere around the transmitted site. So it could be around the penis, the vagina, the cervix, around the rectum. But many times that ulcer is actually in the vagina or on the cervix or a place that a person wouldn't see it. Secondary syphilis, which can occur several weeks to a month after primary syphilis, usually causes a rash. This can sometimes be misinterpreted as other forms of rash. It can be transient. And then tertiary syphilis, again, if it's left untreated, which can occur over months to years, is when the syphilis starts to involve the organs of the body. The heart, the brain, pretty much any organ can be affected by syphilis, tertiary syphilis. And once you have symptoms, any of those that you have mentioned, um, how do they uh, confirm the diagnosis? So for chlamydia and gonorrhea, it's through a test that your provider can do depending on the exposed site. So generally it's a urine test that can, they look for the DNA for chlamydia or gonorrhea. If you have receptive oral sex, they'll do a throat swab. If you have receptive anal sex, they'll do an anal swab. Receptive? Anal sex. So if you... Depending upon your sex practices, you'll get a swab of the throat, of the anus, and also a urine test to look for chlamydia or gonorrhea. Syphilis is a blood test, and so your provider would do blood work and look for whether you have antibodies to syphilis. And then treatment, generally pretty effective, but we've talked about the possibility of some of these bugs being resistant to the antibiotics you have. Absolutely. So Syphilis, unfortunately, has been around almost as long as mankind. So we have documentation of syphilis back hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And unfortunately, it's still with us, but we have a very, very effective, very straightforward treatment, and that's penicillin. And it has to be administered differently depending on the the type of syphilis the person has, whether it's primary, secondary, or tertiary. But it is very effective if the person is diagnosed and receives treatment. Chlamydia and gonorrhea, unfortunately, particularly gonorrhea, have started to have more and more antibiotic resistance. In the past, we used to use medicines called fluoroquinolones, such as Cipro or Levo. There is a significant amount of resistance to this class of drugs, and we don't even use that entire class anymore. Really? And yes. About probably anywhere from five to ten years ago, switched to a different class of drugs that we use for treating gonorrhea, which are called cephalosporins. 
And now the resistance, even amongst that class, has grown enough that the CDC recommends that gonorrhea always be treated with two antibiotics. You treat it with a shot of ceftriaxone, and you take a gram of a pill called azithromycin at the same time. So you use those two antibiotics to treat gonorrhea because of the resistance. The advantage is by using that second drug, you're also treating chlamydia, because many times people can be co-infected and not realize they had both of the bacteria. So if you do that treatment, you treat gonorrhea, the possibility of resistance, and you treat chlamydia at the same time. Boy, life is not as simple as it used to be, is it? No, it isn't. What do you do, though, if you... The antibiotic resistance, what do you do if the gonorrhea makes it through the antibiotics that you just mentioned? Let's hope that never happens. <laughs> so um, far, And that's an excellent question, and it's a question we ask in every area of infectious diseases, is that is there a time that antimicrobial resistance will progress so far that we go back to 100 years ago when we didn't have antibiotics? Um, we have other antibiotics that are stronger that hopefully will be effective against gonorrhea, but, of course, we need to come up with a program that makes sense over literally millions of people because that's what we're talking about for these infections. The beauty of the current program is it's a single shot and a single dose of pills you take. So it's a one-time deal. The patient's in your office. You could treat them right then, and they can be cured. If we ever have to use more complicated antimicrobials that have more side effects or you need to take twice a day for 10 days, we know that there is less compliance. People tend to not finish their program and tend to not become cured. And not only does that have an impact on themselves, but as everything in infectious disease relates, that impacts all of society because they could still transmit to others. We have 30 seconds left. How do you prevent STDs? Wonderful question. Um, several ways. Most importantly is barrier protection. So that's using a condom, a male condom, a female condom, dental dams, in order to prevent the bacteria, virus, or parasite, whatever you're dealing with, being transmitted. Abstinence, of course, would also prevent transmission. And in several infectious diseases, such as HPV and HIV, male circumcision also decreases the rate of transmission. All right. Sexually transmitted disease is something nobody wants to have. <laughs> so hopefully they will take your prevention measures to heart. We've been talking with infectious disease specialist Dr. Stacy Rizza about sexually transmitted diseases in record-breaking numbers the past few years. Thanks, Dr. Rizza. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about gender discrepancies when it comes to treating heart attacks. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Heart disease is the number one killer of not just men, but also women in the United States. One-third to one-half of us will die of heart disease, and over 750,000 Americans each year suffer a heart attack. And if you're a woman who has rushed to an emergency room during a heart attack, the news might be even worse. No. A study published recently in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found female patients had lower survival rates than male patients when treated by male physicians. Here to discuss these discrepancies based on gender is Mayo Clinic cardiologist, Dr. Courtney Bennett. Welcome to the program, Dr. Bennett. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. That study, it was in a peer-reviewed journal, and it says female patients had lower survival rates than male patients when treated by male physicians. I found that really surprising. Do you, do you think it's accurate? There is some validity uh, to, the, to this. Um, I think there's a lot of different factors that go into this. Um, women in general do 
present later. There are some other patient-related factors. So women in general do present later um, with their heart attack symptoms. They make uh, their husband go to the right. emergency room, <laughs> right. but the women say, hey, right. this will probably go away. Right. Is right. that right? There's a delay in recognition of their symptoms. Their symptoms may be more atypical um, than the classic squeezing chest pain. Uh, women may have neck pain without the chest pain or just fatigue. And then there's some other factors. Types of heart disease is different as well. Um, but then there is ample evidence as well that um, women that are treated by men may have poor outcomes as shown in this study. Well, first of all, why do we think still, after all the shows that we've done on this, why do we still think of heart disease as a man's disease? Uh, that's a good question. Um, back in about 2000, the Institute of Medicine in 2001 actually asked the question, um, is sex a factor um, in medicine in general? And really uh, started to point out that there are differences in medicine between men and women. Um, and specifically in cardiovascular disease, women that have heart attacks within the year, first year of their heart attack, 26% of them will die as opposed to 19% of men will die. Um, so there's, I think, a lot of work has been done to recognize over the last decade that uh, more women are suffering from heart disease, but we still have some work to do. So why do, what's the theory why male cardiologists aren't as successful at treating females as female cardiologists? So... And actually, this study specifically looked at emergency room mm -hmm. um, physicians because their theory behind that was that it was an easier way to kind of randomize sure. patients, meaning that things were happening um, by chance. And um, part of the theory is that women actually utilize more um, patient-centered communication with their patient encounters, um, meaning that they do more types of a communication that elicit the perspectives of their patients try and learn about the psychosocial and cultural context of their patients and then actually make shared decision-making. Um, so that's one part of the theory. So women are better conversationalists, whether it's in the emergency room or in a social setting. <laughs> this, this may be true. Yeah. <laughs> it is true. <laughs> um, part of the other challenge is that not specific to gender or sex, but also just in-group biases. So it's more challenging to communicate in general when there's differences within the group. So this also applies to race and ethnicity as well. It's not that men aren't sympathetic or understanding or good physicians. It's just that they may not be as understanding with regard to the way a woman's symptoms may present. Correct. And sex itself does not influence outcome. It's some type of practice pattern that's different. How did you get interested in cardiology? Oh, that's an interesting question. So I actually, I went uh, to medical school because I was insistent that I was going to be a geriatrician. Okay. I love taking care of elderly patients. I felt that they were neglected because uh, uh, they weren't as cute as the pediatric patients maybe. Or, and, <laughs> well, some and so, of them are. So, yeah, some of them are. So <laughs> I wanted to be a geriatrician, and then when I went to medical school, I just was enamored with the excitement of cardiology and loved going down to the ER to see that acute heart attack patient. And so I liked the excitement um, that I found in cardiology, but then also had that um, geriatric component as well because sure. our patients tend to be older. 
So tell us about the, the subtle ways that women can present with a heart attack that a, a woman might be better able to pick up than a man. The, the, the subtleties of, of women's heart disease, women's heart attacks. Right. So again, the, tim- the symptoms tend to be what we say is more atypical. Now, the classic um, description of chest pain is this crushing chest pressure, the hand over the fist type of... Um, elephant sitting on your chest. Elephants type of scenario. Women tend to present without the chest pain, maybe just jaw, arm, or neck pain uh, in the absence of chest pain. They may have simply shortness of breath or fatigue, extreme fatigue, without any other explanation. Which Is can, nausea one of them? Nausea as okay. well. Na- nausea and vomiting can also be one of the nonspecific symptoms. And so you can see how it's challenging when a lot of different uh, mechanisms can cause these types of symptoms. But wouldn't it be true that whether you're a female physician or a male physician, if there was any question about whether or not the woman had had a heart attack, you'd do an EKG or you'd do the blood test, both of which would tell you? Right. So acute coronary syndrome or heart attack consists of chest symptoms or some type of chest distress or other equivalents, we say, meaning equal to that type of symptom, as well as doing an EKG and lab values. An EKG can actually still be normal. More women actually present with a non-ST elevation myocardial infarction. So a normal electrocardiogram. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, than men do. Men have more ST elevation, so more abnormalities on their electrocardiogram. And then the blood test that you're referring to, looking at markers of damage in the heart, can be elevated but also are nonspecific. How can women better advocate for themselves? So I think that if you are having these symptoms and you're concerned and you have other risk factors, family history, um, history of smoking, diabetes, hypertension, if you have these other risk factors and you're concerned, I think it's important to try and speak to the physician and express your concern about these specific symptoms that you're having. Especially if it's a man. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've been talking about gender differences in heart attack treatment with Mayo Clinic Heart Specialist, Dr. Courtney Bennett. Dr. Bennett, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.